according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Deuteronomy. Join me in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to cover 6, 7, 8, and 9 today. So we got four chapters to cover this hour. This is day 75 in the Through the Bible reading calendar. So, uh, Day 75, Love the Lord, Be Holy, Obey. Those are the titles that uh, Ron Rhodes gave in his devotion. For those of you that are reading the daily devotion in the chronological tour through the Bible by Ron Rhodes. This is the the book that we're adapting for the purpose of our study, uh, following along in the Bible reading plan that you have here, a great chronological reading plan through the Old and the New Testament. So today we reach day 75, uh, love the Lord, be holy, obey. And that's kind of a good summary for the whole Bible, don't you think? I mean, what, love the Lord, be holy, obey. Any questions? I mean, there you go. Let's start with a word of prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness once again to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, once again, this is your opportunity to bless each one of us as we redeem this opportunity in studying to show ourselves approved. We thank you, Father, for the living and abiding Word of God. We thank you that uh, that these these powerful scriptures that were written so long ago, and yet they are alive and powerful today. I pray that we can walk in them, that we can live them, that, uh, Father, they would become a very real uh, living, breathing part of each one of us, Father, as we as we grow in this way. So we thank you for this time, and again, we thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so Deuteronomy 6, 7, 8, and 9. Chapters 6 through 9 are all continuations of Moses' second farewell discourse, the one that we had that began in chapter 5, so we're already partway through it. Chapter 6 is a summary chapter of application. Starting with verses 1 here and following, hear the word and do the word. So let's read Deuteronomy 6, 1. This is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. He doesn't say, this is the doctrine God gave me to preach so that you will learn them, so that you will know them. It's so that you will do them. Understand the whole purpose for learning the Word of God is to shape our being and to shape our doing. And we can appreciate that. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And I think it's significant that this emphasis on living the Word of God, learning the Word of God, and living the Word of God, this is the basis by which a nation is judged and its blessings are determined. And not uh, anything else, not the economy, not the politics, not the the uh, military. It's it's the believers that are positive to Bible doctrine, that are living the Word of God. That that's the, the the pivot, if you will, Colonel Theme called the pivot, where you have the divine impact and salt and light benefit to your community. Hear the word and do the word. This is similar to James chapter one, when we're commanded to not just be hearers of the word who are self-delusional, but doers of the word of God. James one verses twenty-two and twenty-three: Prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. The biggest lie we ever tell ourselves is that if we learn enough doctrine, then we're good people. You know, if we just learn enough. And the Christian way of life is not how much can you learn. When you get to the judgment seat of Christ, it's not a Bible quiz on how much do you know. It is a judgment by fire evaluating what did you do based upon what you know. And so the, the bearing, the, the fire that's brought to focus on our deeds, on our production, is the, the entire point for why we're learning. If we're not living what we're learning, then we're learning with no purpose, and that's tragic. Anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. The word of God should be that spiritual mirror that spotlights the, uh, the, the projects that God's presently working on in our character and in our soul development. And I think we can appreciate that as well. 
instruct your children so that they may instruct their children. We already read verse 2, and there's a follow-up there in verse 7. The words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, the setting, the household setting, the, the family setting in the home is the marvelous setting for instruction because it's, it's 24-7. It's around the clock. It's all the time. It's wherever, you know, it's whatever you're doing. And, um, the blessings that you have, you know, in a school setting or in a church setting or in a, in a public venue, there's only certain times or certain days or certain occasions when you're assembled together. But when you're living in a family situation in a home, then it's, it's available around the clock that parents can be teaching these things to their children, uh, not only in academic instruction, but also by example, by living the faith rest life, by by demonstrating the, the priority of staying in fellowship and being in prayer and studying the Word of God and all the things that are done. So teaching them to sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. So we have that. And of course in Second uh, Timothy 2.2, 2, the things that you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is our heritage, the things that we learn and then the things that we convey to that, uh, to that next generation. Still in chapter 6, one of the most famous Bible verses anywhere is right here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the famous uh, testimony that the Jewish people recite. This is their creed. This is their uh, pronouncement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. I mean, this is possibly among the most famous verses anywhere in the Old Testament that uh, I think all of us are familiar with. You shall, and on that basis, that doesn't just sit there by itself, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So that commandment to love the Lord your God is is actually launched from the standpoint of, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Yahweh Elohim is the Lord God of Israel. No other nation can claim Him the way that Israel can. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And that's the basis for the command to love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your might. So uh, the entire law is summarized in the great confession and a great commandment. You can think of the great confession from verse 4, the great commandment in verse 5. And to summarize things in this way, it's a very popular way to do it, a very a useful way to do it. It instructs quite well. All of the rabbis were very fond of doing this. Jesus was fond of doing this. Jesus would challenge his disciples, for example, uh, touching upon these issues. A lawyer comes up to ask him a question, testifying, uh, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. You're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. I imagine Jesus was really suspicious here, like, well, duh, you know. Um, So he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. But then he doesn't stop there. Jesus kept going. Like all great public speakers, you know, they have a point to make and then they're going to they're gonna run with that for a while. They may even ramble a little bit. They may, you know, illustrate through other methods. But he doesn't just stop with, with, uh, with that verse there. He says, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's actually adapting, not only is he adapting the Deuteronomy text, but also the, uh, this is Leviticus 19.18, and he's blending those two together to show the foremost Godward commandment, but then the foremost manward comm- uh, commandment as well, linking those together in a marvelous way. This is this is a marvelous syn- uh, synthesis, and this is why the I think the ICE method of, of doctrinal teaching is is powerful. There's nothing else like it because not only do you have the isagogics and you have the the exegesis, then you have the categorization, then you have the the connections that you make between Deuteronomy six and Leviticus nineteen, and putting them together into a framework that uh, that synthesizes in, in a marvelous way. That's what Jesus is doing right here. So he says on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And he finds a double synthesis there. Whereas Moses was simply giving the single synthesis, 
with one commandment, with one great confession and one great commandment. And so we see those issues there. And by the way, this is fundamental to uh, biblical Christianity. This is fundamental to Judaism. This, the monotheism of Judaism and Christianity is not doubted by anybody except the Muslims who try to abuse our doctrine of Trinity to say that Christians are, are uh, polytheists. And the most common term for Christians in the Quran is we're the polytheists that we hold to three gods because we proclaim Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our doctrine of Trinity And uh, so Islam will use that against us. No, there is one God. He has three persons, but there is one God, the only I am in the universe. All right. The Word of God is to be our manner of thinking, reflected at all times and in all circumstances. Verses 6 and 7. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. That is, it should shape our thinking. It should form the core of how we process information, the core of how we evaluate what we're looking at. It, it, it should shape our worldview by the Word of God. On your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. If you are saturated with the Word of God, and this is the goal for the Through the Bible series, this is really the backdrop for what we're doing this year. We are saturated with Bible doctrine. We are centering our lives in the Word of God. Reading seven days a week, assembling seven times a week. We are uh, just saturated with, with doctrinal truth. Not just to become walking Bible encyclopedias and to win trivia contests and to, uh, you know, to browbeat the, the lesser mortals among us that don't know as much as we do. The, the point is, this Word of God should be saturating us and transforming us and, and drawing us ever nearer to God, like the hymns we were singing earlier. Nearer to Him uh, each day, each moment. And if they're on our hearts, they help, they, they absolutely, they filter everything we look at, everything we think, every attitude that we have. And we're ready to talk about them at a moment's notice. Talking of them at the drop of a hat. Okay, Sitting in your house, walking by the way, lying down, rising up. You're ready to do that at any time around the clock. It is very evident who's living in the Word of God by how readily and comfortable they are talking about the Word of God. And you know, with some, some folks it's like pulling teeth. And you finally get them to, to share a verse and then they come up with, you know, Jesus wept or they come up with something. And, and you can tell very quickly that they don't live in the Word of God consistently or not lately or not for a long time or maybe never. That, that, that um, they, can, they can talk baseball or they can talk football, they can talk politics, they can talk current events. They can, there are other things that they can just rattle on and on for hours because that's where their heart is. That's where their focus is attention. They're living in this world and for this world. And so, you know, you can, you find that they have a, a common interest and they'll talk whatever for hours on end, but you can never get them to talk about the scripture or the things of the Lord or anything spiritual. That's an indicator. Okay. And uh, that's a recognition that here's a non-disciple. You need to disciple. You need to turn into a disciple. And uh, I think these verses are very helpful in that, in that regard. We should also keep constant reminders of God's word with us, and this is the uh, this is the biblical authority for um, Christian bookstores and the knickknacks that they sell for your refrigerator magnets or for your um, you know your uh, whatever your little your your doormats on the front porch or your little doodads on whatnot. Okay, the frou frou that they they probably have the highest uh, profit margin of anything else in the bookstore is is all these uh, knickknacks. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, have Scripture everywhere. Have Scripture in your artwork. Have Scripture in your music. Have Scripture in your decorations. Have Scripture in your... I mean, there's, you can put Scripture on anything, and you have free permission to do that because it helps remind you. It helps focus you. It helps in, uh, in these constant reminders of God's Word. If nothing else, uh, you know, it lets visitors and strangers and anybody that comes into your home, um, you know, termite inspectors or whatever, anybody that comes into your home should know, you know what, this is, uh, this is clearly, this is a Christian home. I mean, look at this artwork, look at this piece of here, look at this scripture here. And maybe they're not even saved and they never go to church, but they've seen a whole lot of Bible just because they walked into your home. Different opportunities there.
Now this can be abused, of course. You can broaden the phylacteries. You can you can uh, have the longer tassels. You can you can uh, you know have the prideful, arrogant Pharisee-like attitude, whereby you know you have the biggest frontal on your forehead. In fact, that thing is so huge and so heavy, it probably hurts your neck just to walk around town wearing that thing on your forehead. But but you're willing to do it because it convinces everybody else that you're more holy than they are. In, uh, in different ways. So don't abuse the principle as it's given here, but nevertheless, I think it's a marvelous principle that we can, uh, we can learn from. God's Word should be the basis for public life as well as private life. Again, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So not only is it in your home, but you and other Christian families around you, hopefully you have, a, you have an impact in your community you know, where it's written on your gates. Is your neighborhood known as a church-going neighborhood? Is your neighborhood known as a godly neighborhood? Is your neighborhood, your town, your, your state, you know, are you known for being God-fearing and, and Bible-living? Or uh, do you have a different reputation, you know, like Las Vegas has or San Francisco? Or I mean, when a town gets a reputation that it gets, how does it ever change that? How do you get the reputation of saying, man, this is a place where, where doctrinal teaching is, is foremost? Okay, and it's kind of curious to me because I know a, I know a faithful pastor in, in Las Vegas, <laughs> right? And in Austin, Texas, of all places, what's Austin known for? Okay, we're keeping Austin weird, I guess, but we're also teaching doctrine at Austin Bible Church. So uh, you know, when all is said and done, uh, I'll, I'll go with the Lord's evaluation instead of what man comes up with. All right, verse ten and following. In fact, from ten down to verse fifteen. God's word should not grow lukewarm in your service to, it should be in your service to the Lord. Not sour service, your service to the Lord. Verses 10 through 15. It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. I mean, think about it. They're going to conquer the land and there's all these cities there the ones they don't burn to the ground, right? The ones that they occupy after they kill the inhabitants, they got houses, they got cities, they got walls, they got land, they got fields. Because God's a God of grace. And houses full of all good things which you did not build, uh, fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. You know, you could plant a new vineyard, but you're going to wait three years before you, you harvest anything from that, anything useful. But now they're taking over a land where these things are already in place. The infrastructure is already there. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. And I think it's common, too, a lot of times human beings in times of adversity uh, are led more to be dependent upon God and walk by faith. But then in times of prosperity, when life is going great and business is booming and, and there's entertainment at, you know, seven nights a week and everything is just, uh, you know, rainbows and unicorns, and then people's faith can sometimes flag into, uh, into a, um, a complacency a ho-hum, a, a lukewarmness, as Revelation 3 speaks of. So, fear only the Lord your God. Worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. Do you think that's an empty threat or do you think that means something? When God says he will wipe you off the face of the earth. I don't think it's an empty threat. Okay? And remember, Israel will be, will be destroyed repeatedly and then restored because God's faithful. But they have a Babylonian captivity. They have a Roman dispersion. They have even to this modern time. They have, there's Jews all over the world that have not yet been restored to the, to the land as uh, Jesus will do at the second advent. So God's word should not grow lukewarm. We should be diligent. Verses 16 through 19, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We should learn from previous failures to apply God's word. And I, I recommend learn every failure of the Bible. Learn from their mistakes so you don't have to make them. <laughs> okay? I mean, goodness, learn from, 
Learn from the water at Meribah. Don't grumble against the Lord's provision. Learn from David and Bathsheba and don't go down that path yourself. I mean, learn from these examples. Learn from every failure the Bible records because the Bible gives us dozens of failures. In almost every book, there's, there's testimony to how human beings fell short and how God's grace sustained them. So when you can learn from their failures, it's all the better. Otherwise, you've got to learn from your own failures and, uh, and face, the, face the consequences there. So do not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. That seems like an awful lot. Can I just keep the commandments? We'll start with that. Worry about testimonies and statutes later? No, all of them right now. Okay, and there's more than that, by the way. It's just the three in this, in this text. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Again, the enjoyment of the promise is entirely conditional. The promise is unconditional, but the enjoyment of the promise is entirely conditional. Go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers by driving out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. As the Lord has spoken. And so it's curious to me. You know, we have these things and it's it's uh, and, and we'll see through the book of Judges into the book of Joshua, we're going to see, or from Joshua into Judges, put it in the right order, okay, Joshua, then Judges. But they still have all these Canaanites living there in their midst, and they did not wipe them out, and they left remnants in pockets all over the place, in, in almost all 12 of the tribes. There's going to be resistance, there's going to be corrupting influence among them uh, on the part of these Canaanite uh, idolaters. And it's uh, it's... They were told not to do that. So their, their incomplete obedience is going to lead to consequences for generations to come. All right, so that's verses uh, 16 through 19. And I was curious, why did they leave them there? Why did they not drive them out? Why did they not obey fully? Why did they reach a point where they said, all right, well, that's good enough? Okay? Because they're humans, they're sinners, and we all do it. We all reach a point where we're tired and we say, well, that's good enough. Or we say, well, I mostly obeyed. Or, well, close enough for government work. Or, you know, we just kind of think it's, you know, no. It's incomplete until you finish what God has called for you to do. And if you ever want to stop short of it is finished, thank God Jesus didn't have that attitude. You know, what if he would have halfway through the work on the cross said, well, that's good enough. (laughs) You know, he didn't. He finished what he was sent there to do. And praise God for that. So, we should learn from previous failures to apply God's Word. We should teach our children to learn from the victories and failures of previous generations. So, we can celebrate the victories, but we also have to acknowledge the failures. And our children need to learn both. Verses 20-25. through When your son comes to ask you in time, in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? That's why you have to have the comprehensive understanding. Testimonies, statutes, judgments, all of it. How do they fit together? Or sometimes today we talk about doctrines, promises, and principles. We don't want to confuse them. We don't want to blend them. We understand that there are functions for each. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. So that was then, that was back in the day. And we were with them at that time, but this is how God brought us out. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. In other words, he couldn't bring us into the promised land. He couldn't give us this land until first he took us out of that land. He had to change us from what we used to be to make us now what we are now. And how pathetic is it when we decide to start functioning like we did back then? That's not why he brought us here. That's not why he redeemed us. That's not why he brought us into the land for his good pleasure. So he brought us out from there in order to bring us in 
to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. See, God's not just a mean, a big meanie. God's not just giving all these laws and commands. God's not just saying, thou shalt not commit adultery because he doesn't want you to have any fun. He's giving us these commandments for our good, for our blessing, for our joy, and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. And it's kind of curious the the attitude that certain unbelievers have because they have ideas of what you know it means to be a Christian or what it means to to follow the Bible and they have all of these impressions based upon how they've been lying to themselves all these years or how the world's been lying to them all this time and the whole idea that you know if you if you want to become a a religious person then you know you're going to be just this kind of a a fuddy duddy you're going to be just this kind of a a boring you know you never have any fun you can't do any anything you want to do because God's a meaning he won't let you do it. I worked with a guy that didn't want to hear the gospel. He knew I was a pastor. He didn't want to know anything out of the Bible because he, he knew for a fact that, 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 that the Bible you know, was hostile to his whole fornication lifestyle. And you know, he said, if I accept your God and your Bible, then you know, uh, I forget how he phrased it. He had some kind of a thing. But he was living with a girl and he, and he said that that was probably wrong in my book. So uh, you know, he didn't want to hear about it. Go away. Stop bothering me. And that's, that's the whole approach. And the idea that God is just this cosmic killjoy who doesn't want us to have any fun, you fail to realize, no, it's it's the exact opposite. Because the life you're living is the life of misery. It's the life that has to lie to himself to convince himself he's having a good time. The real treasures and joys, the blessings of eternal joy, this world can't even comprehend what that's about. And the blessings he provides in marriage, the blessing he provides in family, the blessing he provides in in the, the interaction of the local church, I wouldn't trade this for the world. This is our greatest treasure right here. So it's for our blessing. All right, so that's chapter six, seven, eight, and nine. Goodness, I'm falling behind pace here. This is when you're an Olympic runner and you realize that it's uh, you've got to do four laps around the track and you, you thought you were cruising to the victory and, oh, wait a minute, that's not a finish line. I've <laughs> got three more laps to run. Here we go. Chapter 7 continues Moses' second farewell discourse. Consists of instructions for the conquest and occupation of the land of Canaan by the nation of Israel according to the sovereignty of God. The conquest is supposed to be total and complete. Total and complete. So, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, you know, this conquest as a feature of divine command. All right, now this is where we have to be a little bit careful because sometimes we draw analogies with this there is an analogous um, idea that frequently gets mentioned with respect to uh, colonialism, with respect to the Western or the European discovery of the Western Hemisphere. What was happening when, when Spain and France and England and the Netherlands and all these European powers started to send colonists to the New World? And what did they find there in that New World? They, you know, in the they found there were people there already, but they were a dying people. They were being depopulated in the, in the ravages of, of disease and, and vast swaths of territory were just empty and getting more and more empty the more and more Europeans arrived. And what, were, what was their thought process? What did their pastors preach on? What was the, the message that was given? How did they recognize what was going on here in the new world? Okay? And a lot of times you read those sermons and a lot of times they're just right on track. But then also sadly... A lot of times they were completely off track. Their theology was horrendous when they, when they viewed themselves as the, the new creation. They viewed themselves as bringing in this new world with the new covenant and the new, the new idea that wrong idea there. Okay, Israel still has a future and God will fulfill that in the millennium. The uh, colonization of the Western Hemisphere is not the millennium of Jesus Christ. Anyway, Regardless of everything they got wrong, I don't want to get it wrong today in how we understand 
Israel's conquest or how we understand other wars of aggression that may take place in the world, like Russia invading Ukraine, for example, or the fall of America, or other things that might take place. When a nation moves into a neighboring nation, when a people group is dispossessed of the land that they had formerly possessed. So let's take a look at it. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And this, uh, this, by the way, is one of the points of evidence we looked at when we understood, wait a minute, this is not three million people that came out of Egypt. This is not a standing army of 600,000 infantry soldiers. Because there are not those kind of numbers with these seven nations. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. If you're saying that there's seven nations there that have over three million people each, then you're, you're positing a, a population of, of Canaan at, at over 30 million in, in, uh, the, the historical record does not support that, the archaeological record does not support that, and the biblical record does not support that. And that's the biggest thing, is we're reconciling scripture with scripture. We're looking at and to me, the biggest point of evidence was 600,000 troops, 2,000 firstborn sons, every mom's having 50 babies. Wait a minute. That became a, a text issue that I said, hold on. There's something else happening with these numbers here. All right. So when the Lord your God delivers them from before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show no favor to them. So understand, this conquest is a work of God and the application of sovereignty. He's the one that's doing this. He's bringing Israel into the land. He's clearing the way before Israel. He's delivering these nations into Israel's hand. All they need to do is obey. They need to follow the Lord. They need to stay faithful and stay the course. Even if they think, oh, well, that's good enough. No, keep following the Lord. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons. You shall not take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. This is what's the issue. When, when cultures collide, read Thomas Sowell sometime on conquest and cultures. When cultures uh, collide, and what happens when they mix? All right, and what happens when you have a superior culture and inferior culture? Not supposed to talk about that these days because the multiculturalists say hey, everybody's all the same, we celebrate everybody. But read Thomas Sowell, okay? Uh, and read scripture. The, the issue is you have idolaters that are in defiance of the Lord God, creator of the universe, and you have a covenant holy nation that is serving the creator God of the universe. How do you compromise with that? How do you bind light together with darkness? How do you, you've got to come out from among their midst and be separate. You have to remove the wicked from among yourselves. And this is the fundamental principle. It is believers that are walking with the Lord God. And it has nothing to do with all the garbage that human beings pervert this into when they twist it into racism or they talk about intermarriage or they talk about um, the, 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 the misogynistic Misogynation, I forget, there's a, I can't pronounce it. When they talk about interracial marriages and they talk about um, damaging of, of, of cultures and, and things like that, it's an abuse of the text. And I think it's like when, Mir- when Miriam and Aaron had issues with Moses' Cushite wife with respect to that. What are you doing? You know, believers that are glorifying Jesus Christ, there's the issue. Not the. Uh, all the other garbage that they, they put in texts like this. All right, so yeah. Don't uh, turn aside to these other gods. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their ushering, burn their graven images with fire. Just move in and wholesale destroy all that. Remove all of that, the, the evidence and the testimony and the reminders and the temptations you know, when you start seeing the, the places and start imagining, oh, that, you know, what were they doing here? And then you see engraved in the, go to India sometime and see these temples that they have there. And you see the, the engraved uh, things that are there. Or don't, okay? But if you do, you're going to have an entire um, uh, you know, manual for fornication and it's right there carved into the walls of the, of the temples. All right. So destroy all that stuff. 
For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That God is your creator, but God is also your possessor. He owns you, he possesses you, he claims you as his own. He has all the rights of possession. By possession, that means he can do with you what he wants to do with you because you're his. God did not, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Again, that that does not allow for 600,000 standing troops. That does not allow for 3 million people. You were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh the king. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. See, why is it that this, uh, you know, why, why do I start every sermon with, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? Because that's what God's looking forward to. God is looking forward to a thousand generations of those who love him and those who keep his commandments. That's never been fulfilled up till now and that can't be fulfilled until after the millennium, until sin and death are abolished, until a thousand generations of sinless humanity will then love and serve Jesus Christ. Oh, this is a fun chapter. All right. Let's get caught up on the outline on the left. The conquest is an application of sovereignty. It's God's good pleasure. We see this, again, I keep citing Acts 17, the appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. These Canaanites, their appointed time has come. They're done. They will no longer be nations from this point forward. Israel will be the nation that will possess that land. It will be known as the land of Israel uh, forevermore. The conquest is a response of Israel and the application of volition. So God's the one going before them, but they have to volitionally follow. Israel should utterly destroy the nations. Israel should refuse all covenants, favor, and intermarriage with these nations. Israel should remove and destroy every trace of the nation's idolatry. The nature of the conquest is the nature of holiness, a holy people in covenant relationship with the holy God. Then in your notes, I give you the outline here for the seven nations. Each nation was greater and stronger than Israel, starting with the Hittites. Some confusion there because there are different Hittites in the Bible. Three groups of people lay claim to the term Hittite. The Hamitic sons of Heth, the second son of Canaan. Those are the ones we had earlier in the book of Genesis. Those are the ones that uh, Abraham encountered. Those were the Hittites that, uh, that Esau intermarried with when the daughters of Heth were grievous to, uh, to Jacob and, or to uh, Isaac and Rebekah. We've encountered them previously. There's also a, a group of people that are called the Hattians. The Hattians are a, a Shemitic branch. And then there's the Japhetic Hittites, the Indo-European Hittites. Uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, he was uh, of this branch. These These were... These were um, Indo-European. These were Japhetic. These were, in other words, these were white people, okay? Caucasians or whatever you want to call, call that. I had somebody the other day was telling me there are no white people in the Bible. And I said, what are you talking about? And then I learned that they were using a definition of whiteness that is a fairly recent thing on the college campuses that's not anything I was ever exposed to before. So I didn't even know what it meant to be white. They tried to correct me on that and I just said, okay. Have a nice day. But the uh, Japhetic Hittites, and these are very well known, um, 2 Samuel 11, 1 Kings 11, 2 Kings 7, 2 Chronicles 1, also known through historical records. There were wars between the Egyptians and the Hittites. There were wars between the Hittites and the Assyrians. Very well um, known to the historical record. All right, then we also have the Girgashites. That's the fifth son of Canaan. By the way, the, the Hittites that are being conquered in the conquest are the first of those three. They are the, uh, the, the um, Hamitic sons of Heth, okay? the second son of Canaan. They're a descended people group of Canaan himself. So by definition, they are Canaanites, and they're here in the land of Canaan, and uh, according to the Genesis record. And this is the group 
that is being conquered, not these other two. All right, but then we have Girgashites. That was the fifth son of Canaan, according to Genesis 10, 16. The Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite. The Amorites are the fourth son of Canaan. Again, we just had them. The Canaanites, the descendants of Sidon. Sidon was the firstborn of Canaan. So much so that rather than being called Sidonians, they have the preeminence for the entire clan. And so they can call themselves Canaanites. They wear the badge with pride. Again, Genesis 10, 15, Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, those Hittites that we read about here in Deuteronomy. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Perizzites, apparently a a non-Canaanite ally, I'm sorry, ally of Canaan. Inhabitants within the land of Canaan, possibly a Hurrian clan. And there's a lot of speculation on these Perizzites. Then the Hivites, sixth son of Canaan, also testified in Genesis 10, 17. And the reason why is because we don't see them listed in Genesis 10. I think that's the, the puzzle that's there. The Gibeonites were a Hivite clan. The Gibeonites, we'll encounter them because they, they're, they're, they're a sneaky group. They show up and they lie to Joshua's face uh, about being uh, foreigners from far distant land. And actually they're not, they're locals. But they pass themselves off as foreigners so they can survive the conquest. And, uh, and Joshua lets them get away with it. It's sad. It's a sad story for Joshua there. We'll get to that in Joshua chapter 9. Then the Jebusites, third son of Canaan, Jebus. Now here's something interesting. Jebus, the Jebusites. Genesis 10 16, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvidite, all of these ites are the sons of, of Canaan. Seven of them are now being destroyed in the conquest. The Jebusites. Jebus was conquered by David. It was not conquered by Joshua. It was not conquered in the original conquest in Joshua's day. It was allotted but not accepted by the, the, the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or any of the Simeon, any of those tribes. Well, we'll talk about that when we divide up the land. But fundamentally, it sits there for 400 years until David, in 1000 BC, David then uh, conquers the, the city of Jerusalem, conquers uh, the Jebusites. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 and 5. David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, and the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And in fact, they taunted more so than is reflected here. They, they were so secure behind their walls that they figured that the, lame and the, the sick, lame, and lazy could defend themselves. And uh, there was nothing that, uh, that David could do about it. Anyway, so David offers a bounty and there they went and they took it. There will be more too, by the way. Um, Remind me of that when we get to the Jebusites and some of the failures of Israel to remove the, the Canaanites from their midst and how that caused them snares and other troubles. The Lord's sovereign choice of grace is not dependent upon human worth or merit. Again, He did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number. Uh, He didn't pick you because you were so awesome and holy. God didn't look down from heaven and say, oh, look at that wonderful group of people. I'm going to call them to be my people on this earth. There's none of that. Like he didn't look at us and say, oh, you're so lovely. I have to just send my son and save you. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. The agape love that God expressed has no consideration with respect to the merit of the one that he loves. It's entirely generated by the character of the one who does the loving. This is a fundamental doctrine of grace that's at work. Sovereign choices of grace, not dependent upon human worth or merit. The Lord assures Israel that he will love and bless them exceedingly when they humble themselves and obey his word. That's verses 12 through 16. When you listen and when you obey, you will be blessed. When you uh, disobey, well, that's the other side of the coin. So verses 12 through 16. 
It shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep you with you his covenant and his loving kindness which he swore to your forefathers. That is, he'll keep the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, because he always will, and then the conditional Mosaic covenant. He will keep that as well. That's the conditional one that gives good things when you obey those conditions. He'll also keep that covenant when you disobey and he will curse you with the cursings that come because God is still faithful either way in that conditional covenant. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, your new wine, your oil, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock in the land which you swore to your forefathers to give you. And isn't it curious, all of these secular blessings, all of these worldly blessings, these bios life blessings, they were fundamentally part of Israel as an earthly people in the midst of other earthly peoples. They were fundamentally part of Israel who functioned in bios life, in shadows and, and, and in pictures and in external forms of internal realities. Whereas the church functions in the spiritual internal realities. That we are a heavenly people. We are called out. And it doesn't matter if we're Russian or Ukrainian or American or, or whatever we are. We are a heavenly people standing before the Lord. And why is it that, the, that this all gets abused when the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd comes along and tries to promise you know, the, the fruit of the ground and the grain and the new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock, you know, all of your earthly wealth and your houses and your boats and your cars and your, uh, you know, all this other earthly stuff that they're promising. Missing the point, are we? Okay? In between the shadows they lived under and the reality we function in, the spiritual reality in the heavenly places in Christ. You shall be blessed above all the peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness, even covid He will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare for you. And you know, it's kind of amazing when you're living the Word of God, when you're applying the biblical principles, when you're not fornicating seven days a week and doing all the other stuff. It's amazing the diseases you don't get when you're faithful in your marriage and you're walking in a godly lifestyle and following biblical principles for, for these things. Verses 17 through 26, this promise is to give them courage in the upcoming conquest. So if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? If that crosses your mind, it's normal, it's natural, You are a rational, thoughtful, thinking being. It's not wrong to think about it, but you do have to take that thought captive and stay humble before the Lord and walk by faith in what He's called for you to do. Don't, once you're done thinking about it, don't get self-absorbed in it. Don't become so saturated with your obsession over your human inability that now it becomes a heart conviction. Don't say in your heart, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. God did that. You didn't do that. Did you send those plagues? Did you part the Red Sea? Did you kill the firstborn? You didn't do any of that. So let God do what God does. And you're going to conquer this land because God's going to conquer this land. The great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. There's going to be an insect invasion before the physical troops ever get there. There's going to be angels defeating fallen angels and demons before you even get there. And every demoniac in the land that's licking their chops waiting for you to come, they're actually terrified because when those demons are gone, those, uh, you know, former demoniacs are now going to be the exposed for the, the uh, pathetic cowards that they are. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. If you, swap, if you went through and in a single week destroyed all human life in Canaan, then that would leave great swaths of uninhabited land that would very quickly be overtaken by uh, the, the animal realm. 
But the Lord your God will deliver them before you, will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. In other words, he's going to pace it out. They're going to start in the south, they're going to go to the north, they're going to follow a schedule. They're going to have God's timetable by which each tribe will then gradually occupy the segment of the land that they're called to occupy. He will deliver their kings into your hand. How many altogether? Do you know? Have you read ahead? We're going to get a listing of these kings after Joshua's conquest is complete, and it's marvelous. Sihon and Og, the, the two kings that are mentioned on the east side of the Jordan, that's just an appetizer, that's just a warm-up for, uh, for what follows. Yeah, because I've got to do eight and nine. I've got ten minutes left. Mm. All right, so the promise gives them courage for the upcoming conquest. Chapter 8. Moses reminds the wilderness generation that the Lord has been faithful to them for 40 years. You know, he didn't do that for no reason. He put up with you guys for 40 years. I think he's got a plan moving forward. Or he wouldn't have put up with you guys for 40 years. All the commandments that I'm commanding you today you should be careful to do that you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. Remember all the way in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you See, this is part of their education. This is part of their preparation. They know hardship. In fact, it's all they've known. This this wilderness generation doesn't remember the bondage. Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you. He let you be hungry. Why did they have the no water situation? Why did they have the no food situation? Why did he put them through these things, testing their faith? He humbled you, he let you be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Okay, Jesus quotes this when he's being tested by the devil. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Imagine that. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. So God has been faithful this whole time. Their clothing didn't wear out. In desert conditions, can you imagine? I lived in a desert for six months and I was ready to never see that place again. They lived for 40 years. Even the difficult times were crafted by him for Israel's testing and approval. He allowed for their hunger that he might provide for his glory. He used the physical hunger to teach the spiritual hunger is more important. You know, when we, we have this idea that bad things shouldn't happen to us, are you kidding me? God designs those things so He can teach us the things that we only learn that way. And so He gives you an affliction. You think, I don't deserve this. No, you don't, but who cares? God's assigned it to you because He's going to teach you something through it. Jesus didn't deserve the cross either, but He wasn't complaining. Do what it is God calls for you to do. Physical hunger can teach. The spiritual hunger is more important. He took care of their clothing and their shoes. Um, you also have Deuteronomy 29.5 and Nehemiah 9.21 for support on that. Their relationship to the Lord was one of a well-disciplined son. And thank God for it. Hebrews 12, we taught that in the Hebrew series. Thank God that he loves us. Thank God that he disciplines us. It's proof that we're not bastards. It's proof that he claims us. He says, yep, that's my son. I claim him and I discipline him. And thank the Lord for that. He's going to continue to bless Israel as they enter into the land of promise. That's verses 6 through 10. Temporal bios life blessings are contingent upon the nation's obedience to the conditional Mosaic covenant. Keep in mind, that's on a national basis. When human beings come along and say, well, I've been a good Christian, why aren't I a millionaire? Realize, wait a minute, this is the people, by and large, as a people group, are they positive to doctrine or are they hostile to doctrine? We think about the American population. Are we positive to doctrine? Or are we negative to doctrine? As a population group at large. You know, present company excluded. They will enjoy abundant water resources, horticultural resources, mineral resources. Eating should be followed by satisfaction. I like those verses. When you, eat, when you have eaten and are satisfied... In other words, God blesses you and you have capacity to appreciate it. Bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. 
You know, how many people are earthly wealthy and have no satisfaction because they have no grace capacity? Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Moses warns Israel to not forget the Lord and fail to offer the appropriate sacrifices because prosperity testing is a test of pride. Prosperity testing is a test of memory and perspective. Prosperity testing is a test of attentiveness. And if you fail in all of those, then they'll probably call you Jeshurun. There's a title in here that's the name of Israel in prosperity. And um, yeah. It's a harder test. Adversity is a much easier test. Prosperity is a difficult test, and very few have the capacity to pass that. All right, which gets us to Deuteronomy chapter 9. In verses 1 through 5, again, this people, great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, who can stand before the sons of Anak? You have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? They have a reputation, they're indefeatable. No one can conquer the Anakim. And God says, you're going to do it. That's what you're going to do. So warning Israel that their victory in the conquest will not be because of their own righteousness. Same thing with their redemptions, not because of their righteousness. True with respect to their future restoration, not because of their righteousness, because God's faithful. Moses illustrates his point by reminding Israel of their previous rebellions. <laughs> okay? You know, You're the people that did this. You're the people that did that. You're the people that, I mean, God has every reason in the world. If if God functioned the way you think he functions, you'd have been gone a long time ago. And it's curious, when you read through something like this, this reminder is not to provoke guilt. God doesn't remind us of the past in order to get us to beat ourselves up. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance, the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We have reminders of past failures so that we can grow. We cannot repeat those past failures. This reminiscence is to provoke a greater diligence, obedience, and experience within the land. In other words, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Israel has this opportunity Yes, their fathers died in the wilderness, but now they, in their generation, can step forward and take the land. They can reach forward to lay hold of that for which also they were laid hold of. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. There is a prophesied time that's coming up, and this really is the conclusion to Deuteronomy chapter 9, after he reminds them of Horb and he reminds them of the smashing of the tablets, he reminds them of the golden calf and the idolatry, he reminds them of these, all these failures. Tabara, Massa, Kibroth, Hatava, Kadesh, Barnea. I mean, there's no shortage. All he has to do is name the town and they can remember the failure. And yet they get to learn from these mistakes. They get to forget what lies behind. They get to reach forward. These learning uh, illustrations. When God ultimately delivers Israel for the final time, think about the second advent of Jesus Christ. When he brings them out of the great tribulation, when he brings them into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, that is going to be a time of reflection, a time of reflecting upon past failures, a time of, you know, I, I think crucifying the Christ was kind of a big deal. And then serving Antichrist and all of the rebellions, uh, of everything in between first advent and second advent. So when he brings them into the land at second advent, they're going to have a time of reflection. A a final reminder of their evil ways. This will prompt a one-time and final period of shameful self-loathing. Sometimes people today will comment or write books or discuss the uh, self-loathing Jew or the self-loathing whatever. But this is prophesied for their future says you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations this is when he brings them in and and secures them after the tribulation and he's establishing the millennial kingdom i am not doing this for your sake declares the lord god let it be known to you be ashamed and confounded for your ways O house of israel and so they're going to mourn and god's going to give them this time of mourning 
and then he's going to turn the desolate land into the Garden of Eden, and then there's going to be all these blessings, and they'll have kingdom glories ever after. But the first response to the grace that redeems them is to remember their evil ways and the deeds which were not good and to loathe themselves. So how long does that last? How long does that last? Does that last for seven years while they're burning weapons? Does that last for uh, the, the mysterious number of days that Daniel 12 talks about? Does that last for the entirety of the millennium so that they'll be prepared to enter into the new earth in the, the full glory that God has for them? I don't think it lasts that long. But they do have a period of self-loathing in which they have to reflect upon this and identify the grace of God that brought them into their kingdom. So yeah, take Ezekiel 36. And when people avoid Ezekiel, they miss some amazing prophecies of what happens. I think it's the least known of all the major prophets. So uh, so stay tuned. I'm looking forward to that. All right, well, that finishes Deuteronomy chapter 9. We'll move on to Deuteronomy chapter 10 next time, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the teaching today. I thank you, Father, for uh, all the grace that makes this possible. And so we just give you the praise and the glory, Father. Might we learn the lessons in our own application, in our own day and age. Might we um, not only understand the word, but live it out for the glory of Jesus Christ. Might we be an impact on our communities, on our state, on our nation. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.